0: This is Pil Myung, and you are listening to The Wrestle. My earliest conceptions of my own identity were formed in relation to systems around me—faith, family, and country. Growing up in the 1980s, I had little reason to question these systems because they were thriving. My parents had a stable marriage, I had a stay-at-home mom who doted on me, and my father had a good job that took our family around the world— It was also a good time to be an American. We were winning the Cold War, and American cultural exports like music and movies were a global phenomenon that made it cool to be American when traveling overseas. Our church was also booming. Membership roughly doubled between the time I started elementary school and the time I finished high school. My parents taught me to think of myself first as a child of God That though I had been born to them, they were my spiritual brother and sister, fellow children of God, before whom we were on equal footing, and to whom we owed our first loyalty. In my young mind, God and the Church were synonymous, and we attended the Mormon Church, as it was commonly known at the time, though the Church now prefers to be referred to by its official name, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, for most of my life, It leaned into the nickname Mormon. So, I thought of myself first as a Mormon, second as a member of my family, and then as an American. Like a sports fan might feel a sense of pride in the success of a team to which he himself has personally contributed nothing, I felt great pride in being a Mormon, a member of my family, and an American. I was taught that I was special, that I was born into my family in my church and my country at this time because God had a special work for me, and that my family, church, and country were the greatest family, church, and country on earth. In Genesis, the first book of the Bible, Adam and Eve live in a state of innocence in a garden paradise. God commands them to multiply, and He also commands them not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, warning them that if they do, they will die. Predictably, they eat the forbidden fruit, after which their eyes are opened, and they perceive that they are naked. God then throws them out of the garden into a world where they experience sorrow and hardship, have children, and die. Many faith traditions view this story as a cautionary tale about the sad consequences that come from disobeying God's commandments. In the faith tradition into which I was born, Adam and Eve are celebrated for choosing to sacrifice for their children and having the courage to seek truth at the cost of their lives. The Church teaches Adam and Eve could not have accomplished their Heavenly Father's purpose for them, coming to know Him, if they had not had their eyes opened, endured adversity, and become parents themselves. As I think it is for many, my childhood was my own sort of Eden, a period of innocence in which I was blissfully ignorant to flaws in the systems from which I derived my sense of self. The systems themselves discourage clear-eyed questioning as an act of disloyalty, so objectivity was nearly impossible, and something I actively resisted. But, Life being what it is, there have been moments of clarity when my eyes have been opened to the metaphorical nakedness of beloved systems, and I have found myself reeling in a world of cold realities where one must labor to nurture seeds of faith among thorns of mistrust, shame, and disappointment. The experience is jarring, to be sure. But on the other side is wisdom and growth. Let me give you one example. Ten years ago, the church responded to an unflattering news report with a press release of its own that I thought was the most disingenuous gaslighting I had ever seen. I was stunned that the church would be so dishonest, and I began questioning many of the church's truth claims that I previously had taken for granted. I began studying the origins, evolution, and context of many church teachings and practices, and the more I learned, the more apparent it became, that church leaders had at times deliberately misled or withheld information from the general membership of the church. I felt betrayed by people whom I had trusted, embarrassed at my own naivete, and sorry for harm I had caused personally and as part of the system in reliance on false narratives. About this time, three good friends of mine, one from elementary school, one from college, and one with whom I had carpooled to work, decided to leave the church. One of them blogged about his experience, and I read his blog with great interest. He wrote, Changing my worldview was at times disorienting, and I felt some sense of loss, and even sadness, upon recognizing that the church to which I had given my heart and mind for years was not what it claimed to be, nor what I thought it was it was emotionally, mentally, and even physically draining. But at the same time, I was liberated from self-doubt, guilt, fear, and shame, freed from the cognitive dissonance that was my constant companion as I became increasingly frustrated trying to reconcile my knowledge about the way the world really is with church dogma. Reading this, I could relate to my friend's feelings of cognitive dissonance, disorientation, and loss. But it was what he wrote next that really impacted me, he said. My spouse was unable to help me through that time. I needed support, and I found it online. Our interests diverged. She started working out and became friends with her personal trainer, a young Muslim man. She secretly became very interested in Islam. I secretly became very interested in one of my online friends. We decided to go our separate ways believing that we each would be happier living apart than together, and that our children would fare better with two happy parents living singly than two miserable parents living together. My friend's marriage ended when he left the church. In fact, all three of my friend's marriages ended in divorce when they left the church. It was a pattern and a wake-up call. All three of these friends were smart, deep thinkers. They all had graduate degrees and their inability to reconcile church dogma with their lived experience, or church historical narratives and truth claims with their own understanding of historical and scientific evidence, made it impossible for them to, as they saw it, continue living a lie. But their intellectual struggle with a the theoretical had real-world practical consequences for themselves and their families. Tap the brakes, I thought. As much as I'm having trouble understanding or defending certain church teachings and practices, and as angry, sad, and lost as I may be feeling about dishonesty, error, and evil in the system, I am not about to think myself out of the church and blow up my family. It wouldn't be fair to my wife, and I definitely don't want that for my children. What if it were all untrue? A fraud? A pack of lies? Would that be something to blow my family up over? No. A good friend of mine is Jewish, and he regularly attends Mass with his Catholic wife and children. Why? Because he believes in Catholicism or enjoys Mass? No, not one bit. He attends Mass with his family because it makes them happy, and I admire him for that. He is an amazing husband and father. For all the lip service paid to the importance of family at my own church, I hardly think my church would celebrate my attending Catholic Mass with my family if my wife and children were Catholic. I think there would instead be lots of judgment, hand-wringing, and concern for the welfare of my soul, and lots of pressure to convert my family rather than support them in their chosen faith journey. That hypocrisy notwithstanding, I know it makes my wife and children happy that I had church with them. And church is not by any means all bad. There is still some baby in that bathwater. So, I determined, even if I came to the conclusion that it was all wrong and lost my faith completely, that was no reason to leave the church and risk losing my family. Now, is it fair or right That the church possesses that leverage over the lives of its members? That it is that coercive? In fairness to my friends who have left, and there have been many who have left, not just those three, I completely understand why they choose to leave, and how the system itself creates the dynamic that sets families up to fail when members leave. Members of the church do not marry just for love or some romantic ideal, The Church teaches that marriage is required for exaltation in the afterlife. So, marriage becomes somewhat transactional, with the specific person whom one is marrying being regarded by some as less important than the fact that one is marrying at all, marriage being something of a box to tick on the checklist for salvation. So, in the Church, spouses are in some sense fungible. Understandably, One who leaves the church may come to resent their marriage, to view it as having been entered into more as an act of piety than an expression of love, and feel as if they were coerced into it by a system that harmed them. One who stays in the church when their spouse leaves it may feel anxiety about their fate in the afterlife and desire to replace their spouse with someone with whom their position in the afterlife feels more secure. All this is perhaps hardest on children, who are taught that if their parents marry in a Mormon temple, their family will be together in the afterlife. If their parents divorce, and especially if they later remarry in the temple, it invites all sort of questions and anxiety about what will happen in the afterlife, for which the Church offers no straight answers. It is all terribly sad a deep flaw in the system. And perhaps one could say that in my case, the coercion worked, because, for the sake of my family, I decided to stay. If there was ever a man who could say he was coerced into marriage, it was Adam. His marriage to Eve was basically arranged. After Eve ate the forbidden fruit, she offered some to Adam, who at that point was placed in the no-win situation of having to choose between two conflicting commandments, to not eat the fruit and to cleave to his wife, who at that point, having eaten the fruit, was about to be kicked out of the garden. If Adam had wanted an out from the marriage into which he was coerced, this was his opportunity. Instead, Adam chose Eve over piety, And over his own life. Adam was ride or die. The first time I met my wife, I was smitten. She was so pretty. And as I got to know her, I learned that she was also kind. Kind and pretty were a compelling combination. But I would be lying if I said that religious pressure did not also play a role in my decision to propose to her. One silver lining in my religious questioning was that it allowed me to choose my wife again. If the first time I chose my wife because of my faith, the second time I chose her in spite of it, and that, frankly, is much more romantic. Ten years on, I'm grateful that I decided to stay with my wife and with the church. Not that I haven't continued to struggle with flaws in the system. If anything, in the last ten years, they have become more obvious. But so also have the strengths. I will speak more about both later. I owe a debt of gratitude to my friend for blogging about his experience leaving the church because it was his experience that persuaded me to stay. I hope to pay that forward by sharing my own experience with the church and other systems so that those who are making their own decisions about whether or not to engage with these systems, however they decide, can consider my course when charting their own. That's all for today. Thank you for listening to The Wrestle.